Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Lenise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. My guest on today's episode is Natalie Megan Blake. Natalie so generously shares her story. And if you think you might have or know someone with endometriosis, adenomyosis, or fibroids, I strongly encourage you to listen to this episode. Thank you so much, Natalie, for so generously sharing your story. Hi, Natalie. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Um, you have quite a big story, quite there's a lot going on, and we're going to get into all of that. But first, I'd like to start by hearing the story of your very first period. Okay, so I was nine. Um and I was so upset because I just came on in pri- at primary school and we were just about to leave to go for swimming. And swimming is like, you know me, you know, swimming is, that's my sport. Um, so I was upset, frying and everything. Um, but I didn't really know that much. I didn't really know anything really that much about it. Um, but the lead up to that, I was having like a lot of excruciating pain and and stuff. And I think my grand just thought that I just had a, a, a stomach bug. Um, that she didn't really think, oh, she's going to be starting like her period. Um, so yeah, then obviously I got sent home. Um, so my grand was just like in shock, like you're only nine. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, but then my auntie on my dad's side, she started at, um, a young age as well. So she was just like, okay, she taught me about plaids and how to put it on. Um, but then I was like, I was throwing up. Um, the bleeding was so heavy. It was so heavy. And I had, like, I had at that time, I even had massive clots then not to know. And not my, my grand wasn't to know that that could be a sign for anything, you know, and the excruciating pain I was in. And I bled for like 10 days. So my first period, I was bleeding for like 10 days. I had um, about 12 to 14 days of no bleeding. And then I started bleeding again. And then it was like another 10 days. So it was every couple of weeks I was, I was having a period. Um, my grand took me to the GP and was just like, but obviously that's, that's not normal. It's every couple of weeks, you know, um, a nine-year-old is having her period and she's throwing up and then she's not eating and her flow is just like really heavy and it's all over the bed and my clothes and you know it's it, at that at that age as well it was scaring me because I'm thinking am I, am I am I dying why is there so much blood coming out of me um you know and then not eating and not sleeping properly and then missing so many days of school as well due to that um and the gp told my grand oh this is normal you know um just because she's just started it might take a while for it to just regulate um and it's it's just going to give it a few months if it doesn't regulate then come back and then because at that age they didn't want to give me any medication or anything like that they just gave me um I think it was a liquid form of paracetamol at that time. Like something I can just, um, in my mouth, so my grandma would just do that for me. Um, then it was just like hot water bottles. And I would have to have that so hot that obviously all my skin would go red. And um, maybe the light skin, that, that stuff just showed up. It just looked like massive, massive red blotches all over my stomach. Um, and I would have really bad headaches really bad migraines I had I was really sensitive to light um and I feel 
I was also dehydrated as well a lot because I was throwing up so much and then I wasn't replacing anything because anything that I was putting in, I, I was, that was coming back out again. Um, I would have the runs as well. Um, so all experiencing all of this at the age of nine was a lot. So that's the shorter version. So you're nine years old. So that's year, year five, year six. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're missing school. You're having these very long, very excruciating, very heavy periods. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wish I could say that it surprised me that, you know, your doctors said what they said, but it doesn't surprise me. Especially, you know, you think now, why, if you knew what you know now back then, how that early diagnosis could have made such a difference. Can you talk a little bit more about the impact that the you know, the the heavy heavy long and excruciating periods had on your schooling, your friendships, and your mental health at that age? I think obviously at that age, I'm I was unaware. Um, you know, I think I was upset a lot, didn't understand, but I was just listening to what my gram was being told, who then in turn my gran was listening to what the doctors are telling her, you know. Um and I think obviously with with that as well, it was just I don't even know. It 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 affected me a lot, as in I missed a lot of school. I was I would say throughout the month, I was home at least two weeks out of the month because of the pain and that. So then, and then, like I said, I, I loved swimming. So I would miss out on going to going swimming because at that time I wasn't using tampons or anything like that. It was just pads and the big, thick ones. And then I'm walking around with that as well. Like I feel like I've got a nappy on and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a baby. Why have I got, why have I got to wear this big thing? But I would literally have to wear two of those, you know, so it's coming all the way up the front and all the way, because I would just, it would just flow and just go everywhere. And this was the days before wings. I don't think wings were even invented then. <laughs> um, so obviously like the pads would go in and then it would get on your knickers and then I'd feel uncomfortable, you know, and then I felt like I couldn't speak to anyone at school about it because I was told to be quiet about it. Um, and then also I didn't know anyone else in my class if they started their period, even though I wanted to ask, but I was told to be quiet. Like you don't talk about it. Just say that you're unwell. You know, you just caught a stomach pug and that was it. So I was always told never to speak on periods, never to speak about period pain or what I'm going through from a young age. So that was embedded in, in me from then. So the only way it really affected friendship is, is time lost with spending with friends, you know, and having conversations with friends through primary school and secondary school. Um, I felt that it affected my emotions a lot. You know, I could be really angry one minute and then really happy go lucky another minute. Um, and I really didn't know how to navigate that. And I didn't understand what was going on with my body, why my emotions would fluctuate so much and why I was just all over, all over the place, you know, why my belly would look so big one minute and then another minute it would be really flat. Um, I used to dance as well. So I used to do tap, ballet and all of that. And it would it would really affect me through dancing as well. And I felt really heavy and I can't move as much. Um, you know, and the teacher would be like, oh, what's wrong with you? And I'd be like, nothing. Because it goes back to that conversation from when you was in primary school. You can't talk about your periods. You can't talk about your underneath, as my grand would have said. Um, you know, you need to keep stum. So I suppressed a lot of feelings and emotions due to that because of what was told to me when I was younger. So I'd never openly spoke as much as I do now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you are incredibly open on social media. And I think 
you know, you've helped a lot of people through sharing your journey. I just want to skip ahead a little bit and talk about talk about that because you 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 were told, you know, to keep keep it quiet, don't talk about your underneath. And now you're so open. And you know, there is a stigma in Afro-Caribbean communities about talking about periods and menstrual health and, you know, sex and all of that. There's just so many taboos. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you, do you think it was a cultural issue or, you know, can you just say more about why you were told to keep quiet about what was going on with you and how you were able to transition away from that kind of thinking to the openness that you have now? I think, so I was raised by my gran, who was, who came from Barbados. Um, so she's obviously got that old school way of, of, like she's been raised that old school way. And then obviously then I've been raised like that. So from ever, whatever she was taught from when she was young about keeping quiet about things, she's then in, embedded in myself. Um, and I find that within our culture as well, you know, whatever happens in the home stays in the home. You don't talk. There was like this, um, it's like what you see here stays here. What you say here stays here. It was at home, um, up on the wall. Um, and it, and, and quite a lot of Caribbean households had that saying in their, in their home, you know, so I feel like that was like, um, I could be wrong, but it was like a, a rule or, Something that everyone followed, but a lot of the homes followed this same, these same words. Um, and then obviously that was, that's embedded into your, to your children. So when you step out of that front door, you don't speak about anything. Um, you don't share family business. You don't share anything about yourself. They don't bring no embarrassment and no shame on the family. You know, you, you just go out, do what you have to do. And when you come back home, if then you want to talk at home, then do so. But then sometimes speaking to even some family members, you know, it's just about, sometimes it's just like, oh, I don't want to hear it. Or, you know, or it's like, well, just suck it up. You know, be strong. Like, you're a strong woman. It's only pain. Like, it will pass. You know, you just deal with it now. Take what you need to take in and you keep it moving. Um some households they might have had those conversations, so you know it wasn't so 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 much of a hard upbringing. But I feel as well like with mine, I just feel like my grand didn't know. You know, she didn't know anything other than you know women have periods and you do have pains. Go to the doctors, they give you some medication, you take it. That's it done. You know, it's as simple as that, and that's what I feel that like um, back then. A lot of people followed that. Even now, I still think some people do follow that. But I think now the conversations now are starting to, to be had. And for me, I felt like because when I was diagnosed, I was like, I need to speak to someone and someone that also looks like myself that can relate, you know, and come out of that box, which I struggled with because I was told, like, why are you doing this? Why are you talking about, about your underneath? Um, why are you sharing your business? You're not meant to talk your business outside your front door. Um, and I'm just like, well, I need to connect. I need to talk. It's, it's, it's messing with me. I feel alone. I, 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 I just need to share with someone who understands what I'm going through, you know, and I did find a community, um, but I didn't connect with them. So then that's when I took, um, first to, it was first to Facebook. Um, and I shared and I met one of my friends who I didn't even know, obviously she didn't know that I had, and we'd be out partying with each other and not know that we're both going through the same thing. It's only when I then spoke about it, I started getting all these messages like, oh my gosh, Natalie, um, you know, I can relate to you. I've been diagnosed with this as well. So I found that with me opening up, it gave, it created a community for people and a safe space for people to come and speak to me. And especially when they knew me already. And then it would be like, oh, my friend has, can, do you mind if she contacts you? Cause she really needs to talk. And then it just went, 
it just went from there. And I was like, this is needed and this space needs to be created within our community and know that it is okay um, to talk about stuff outside your front door. Um, and yeah, I think that's... Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the the impact that the work that you have done um, has that you've seen on others? Um, because you have you also now have your Sunday SIP events where you bring those with endometriosis together to connect and to learn. You know, can you talk a little bit about the impact on other people and also on you? Well, for me, it's created a safe space for myself and that connection with people um, in person connection other than just in the groups and social media, you know. And sometimes you need a hug and getting that hug, just that hug, no words need to be said, just that hug. You can just feel that understanding between two, two people, you know, um, and it, it, so I'm getting goosebumps even talking about it. <laughs> it mm-hmm. It's just like, it's just, it's just an amazing feeling. Um, and, you know, I, I felt that I just wanted people to meet other people in, in person. And, you know, at least if they network with one person, they then can find a support system, you know, someone that they can go and speak to, meet up for coffee, or if they're having a bad day, they can have that conversation with someone, um, you know, just from the event. And also to help encourage people to advocate for themselves, you know, when you're going to the, these appointments, you know, um, helping people have that voice, encouraging people to have that voice or when they're going to go into these appointments and being shut down to know that you can get a second opinion, you know, to, to provide um, information and um, advice, whether they take it or not. Um, and people can relate to in-person stories as well. And it helps them not to feel so alone through what they're going through. Um, you know, so me creating um, Sunday SIP, which it, was, it wasn't called Sunday SIP before. I had a couple of events before um, and then um, rebranded. Um, I just felt like, like, yeah, this is needed. Some people have gone on to do amazing things from it. And it's just been helping them just to do lives, um, just come to the event and speak. Some people, it's, they spoke for the first time. And they were like, oh my gosh, that has helped me to exhale so much. I just feel like I just released. And now I feel like I can speak. I can go into these appointments and, you know, I feel a little bit more confident with what I'm going through and how to manage what I'm going through and how to speak to a doctor instead of just being silent in those appointments, in those six six minute appointments. So to hear that, to hear that and to have that feedback and just to see the smile and everyone interacting, it's just like, I'm just like, yeah, this is a good thing in it. I just need to keep it going. Mm. You talked a lot about advocacy. So helping others advocate for your, for themselves and also self-advocacy. Can we just rewind a little bit and talk about your diagnosis and it's, I should unfortunately say diagnoses because you have several conditions. You have fibroids, you have endometriosis, you have PCOS, and you have adenomyosis. So can you talk us through the diagnosis journey for each of those conditions? So, um, as I said, it was college. Um, and I was struggling a lot and I just knew that there was something wrong. So I went to my GP and I was like, look, uh, my periods are really heavy. Um, at that stage, I was bleeding for like two weeks. Um, and I was doing a sports course. So obviously doing sports and bleeding so heavy and the pain was struggling with my studies. Um, you know, I've tried so many different medications. So my GP was like, you know what, need to refer you to the gynecologist. So I was just like, 
thank you. And at that point, I changed doctors as well because I felt like my doctor before wasn't listening to me. So I asked to see someone else. And this doctor, she was absolutely amazing. And she was like, you're too young to be going through this and you're struggling with your studies. We need to help and support you and see what's actually going on with you. So I was like, thank you so much. Um, so I was referred and I had scans done. I had a lap bend and this was then going into my early 20s. Um, and then I was diagnosed with PCOS. Um, and then from that, I was just told by the gynecologist, oh, you're young, you're going to struggle to get pregnant. You need to get pregnant like as soon as possible because as soon as you start hitting your late 20s, early 30s, it's, it probably will be impossible for you to get pregnant. And I was like, what? Like, what is going on? Like, no, this is not, this is not happening. Um, and I was like, I can't. I, I'm sure I just booked a girl's holiday around that time as well. So I was like, that's not happening. I'm single. You're just making me want to go out there and just go and get pregnant. I was like, no. And they were just like, just keep taking your, um, your painkillers. And that was it. And then I was just left. So I was just given painkillers for ages. And I was on um, the Celeste pill as well. And then I came off the pill because I just felt like it wasn't helping um, me. And then they tried me on different pills. And then my body was just like all over the place. Um, I started coming out with like loads of spots and all of that. And then I was just like, no, this is not, this is not working for me neither. Um, my periods was the same. And I, and I kind of just left it because I just, I actually did then. I didn't know any better and I left it. And it wasn't until I met my partner and then, um, we was just like, well, if we fall pregnant, we fall pregnant. Um, so this was going now into my early thirties. So it's been like 10 years, but it's been 10 years of me going back and forth and being put on this medication, let's try this for six months. Oh, if that doesn't work, then try this. Then it was like, no, then then try these pills. Oh, if this pill doesn't work, then try that. So for all that time I was doing it, I was just going through the motions of do, taking all this different type of medications. And then saying as well, like there's, there's something, there's something going on. I think I had, I did have two gynae um, appointments, but they said that they didn't see anything. So it wasn't till like, my in my early thirties that I went to my GP and I was like, look, um, I'm not saying I'm trying to get pregnant, but it's not happening. My periods are like this. I don't know what's going on. Um, then I wasn't listened to for like two years. And then, um, I changed doctors within that. So it was my fourth GP. So imagine through that time I changed, I just kept changing my GPs. And then when I went into that appointment, as soon as I started seeing some of the symptoms, he was just like, I think you've got endometriosis. And then it rang a bell because I had a conversation with my mum and she said that she'd been diagnosed with that. So um, I was just like, what, what is that? And she's just like, oh, it's just painful periods. And so she wasn't even told that much information herself. So then when I then went um, and I had a gynecologist appointment, they said they, that they could see some stuff on the scans, but I need to have a lap to, to find out more. So I said, okay. Then I had that um, laparoscopic surgery. And when I came out of that, I was told, she then said to me, I'm not qualified to do the amount of surgery that you need done. She goes, You're, you are riddled with endometriosis. You have got organs stuck together. And I need to refer you to a specialist. And I was just like, what? She was like, how many, how long have you been trying to? And I was just like, well, from in my early twenties, I got diagnosed with PCOS. And then throughout for the last 10 years, last 10, well, 13 years, um, I've been going to my GP and just been given medication the whole time and no one wasn't listening to me. She said, yep, yeah, you've got fibroids as well. Um, I think at the time I had three fibroids um I think one was six centimeters um and the other two was at one and two centimeters um and she was just like yeah I need to refer you I was just like wow was referred 
got forgotten about. So I had to keep chasing up. And that's one thing I would say you have to keep chasing up your appointments. Don't wait to, for that letter to come through the door or that phone call or that text. Chase to find out like what's going on with your appointment and find out whoever your um, specialist is, get their secretary's number and email and you make those contacts. Um, they must have saw my name how many times and just like, oh, she's contacting again. So I was like, look, I've been waiting. What's going on? Then when I had my surgery, finally, I had eight procedures in one go. Like my surgery was about eight and a bit hours where I was only scheduled for a four hour surgery. Um, and also I had, um, and before that, actually, I, I was having problems passing stool and I was bleeding through, the, through my back passage as well. So when I went to the a- A&E about that, they were just like, oh, you're just straining. You need to stop straining. You just need to take some high, um, up your fiber, then you'll start going to the toilet. And I was just like, no, 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 there's something wrong. So when the um, surgeon went in, I had endometriosis wrapped around my colon and a nodule inside my colon, which they thought could have been cancer. So they had to remove that. I had um, my bowel, ov- ovaries bent back, stuck. One was stuck behind my womb. Another was stuck to my bladder. And then I had my um, colon stuck, I think, behind my womb. I had endo in my fallopian tubes as well. Um, and then it was just all it was just all over the place. So everything, basically all my organs were doing it and coming together. Um, so that was massive. Then after that, they were just like, look, this is the best time. You need to try and get pregnant after this surgery. Give yourself two months to heal and then try and get pregnant. Um, that didn't happen. I wasn't given any information or any sort of support along that fertility side. Um, it was just sent away, go and get pregnant. Um, just monitor your endo symptoms. And that was it. And um, yeah, we removed your fibroid. I asked, um, it's an amazing doctor. Um, he sent me images of what was taken out. Um, so I have those images, images of where my before and after as well from that surgery. Then a few years later, I then had another surgery where they found ovarian cysts. Um, and then my endo obviously started to grow back. Um, so then I had obviously then had another surgery. Within a space of a month, the ovarian cysts grew back double the size than what it was to the point where they, that's when they thought I had ovarian cancer. Um, so, and then um, my tubes then bent back and then my actual uterus, everything was tilt sideways. So imagine my right ovary is down by just say the top of your thigh. So it was actually turned like this. So it was just not in the right position. And then um, my colon was affected again. So this is in the space of a month of having surgery. But my previous, my surgery that I had, I did ask that that doctor to, you know, remove the fibroids because I've got five fibroids, which are still there. Um, no one wants to touch them, but they are small. Um, they're two to, two to three centimeters. Um, but, you know, the the cyst that was on my left side had to be removed. And then obviously with that, that's touching the ovary, which then will affect your AMA, you know, and obviously I'm trying to get pregnant. Um, and my AMH was already low from the surgery before that. Um, um, and when they went in, they found that I have a cyst on my right ovary. So they never, that never came up in the scan. So they were very shocked when they went in, they were like, oh my gosh, She's got two. Um, but during that time, obviously, being told that you might have cancer. So I was under the Royal Marsden um, as well, as well as Chelsea Westminster Hospital. Um, and before that, I was, this time last year, I wasn't walking because of the amount of pain. And I think I had to have my partner carry me um, to the toilet, to the bathroom. Um, I was having spasm and, and they found some endo on my 
they said on it was touching my nerve on my lower back. So around my um I think around the lump, lumbar part and the coccyx. And then obviously it was affecting my hip flexors on my so my hips, sorry, on my on my um left side. So that's why I was having a lot of pain and everything down my left side. And I wasn't able to walk as much and everything, my feet and that will seize and go like this. So the endo started affecting my nervous, my nervous system. Then I would get a lot of twitching on this side and headaches. Um, my eye would twitch, which I still got a bit of that now. Um, and yeah, so they removed the left side, the left cyst on the left side and they only rained on the right side because they didn't want to touch the ovaries too much because my levels are on a low, low, low end, hmm. like to the point where they think like, you know, we t- you're going to go into surgical menopause if we touch the other side as well. And, and that was a risk that the surgeons before, the surgery before, he didn't want to touch my ovaries because he was scared of me going into ovarian failure. But I had to, he gave me the, he gave me, um, an ultimatum. He said, do you want fertility or do you want to, um, reduce your pain? You need to choose which one. And being told that a couple of hours before you're going into surgery, like you're prepped in your gown before surgery, you have to make this choice. It's like, but you know, my goal is fertility, but you're trying to push to, reduce the pain, but if you reduce the pain and do the stuff that you need to do, it's going to affect, um, affect my fertility. And then it was like, well, then what do we do? Or you just don't have the surgery. So what is your choice? And just like my, my, my fertility is my choice, you know, and, and I, that's what I've wanted. I've wanted to have a family, I wanted to have a baby. Um, and then, as I said, within a month after that surgery, it just went left and downhill. And then I had surgery this year, May, um, which was with a robotic surgery at Chelsea Westminster Hospital. Um, and yeah, they, they did a, a great job. Um, but yeah, it's, it's affected my fertility. Um, I feel, and I'm now just, on that journey with that. Are you comfortable talking about the the fertility journey that you're on now? So can would you be happy to say more about that? Yeah, so before so actually before lockdown we we was referred um and we had an appointment. So obviously the lockdown lasted a couple of years. Like need to you know sort this out and I don't know how much I know that my endos grow in and I don't know how, where I am now because you can't go and have any follow up appointments to see where you are or what's going. We then had an appointment, um, problems with my breathing. So I was, I actually had a blood clot in my lung. Um, and I had granulolas on my lung. Do you know what they are? They look like, um, it's like sugar, look yeah. white. Yeah. So I was having problems with my breathing and a doctor, um, when I went into A, I had to go into A&E because I just couldn't breathe properly. And they said, if you would have left it a couple of days, you wouldn't be here. Like it was like a week. Um, so I had to have all this medication done and scans done and clear the, to clear the clock. Um, so that was a really scary, obviously scary moment for me. Um, and then from that, I was like, yeah, I just need to have a baby now. Like, cause anything can happen. Um, I want a little me. Um, and then, um, from that we was, uh, we had, we started having our appointments. I put on a lot of weight with the steroids and I think that they were giving me, um, for medications for my lungs to help me with my breathing. Um, so when we, when I went to the appointment, I explained, this is where I'm at and this is what's happened. Um, and they were like, okay. Because I'm on this medication, it does have steroids. I have put on a lot of weight because I know BMI is included in part of their assessment with fertility. Um, and so they, so yeah, they were like, yeah, that's fine. I had my, um, 
mine and then my partner had his. So unfortunately, there are issues on both sides. And I just felt like, so this is where it just affected, started affecting my mental health. Because I was like, if it doesn't rain, it pours. It's like, it's not only just me, it's also my partner as well, which he had no clue about. Um, You know, he had surgery when he was a baby. And from that surgery, they think now that's affected his fertility. You know, so there was not a follow-up from when he was a kid. And obviously that's way back in the day where they're probably like, oh yeah, you have your surgery and send you along your way. You're, he's fine as a baby, he'll grow, he'll be fine, blah, 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 blah. Um, so where it's on the both sides, it just put us in a zone. Um, but then they gave him some medication to take. Then he was meant to go back. So we was contacting the fertility um, clinic and saying, uh, like, you know, he's on, we've paid for this medication. He's taking this medication. We haven't had a follow-up appointment come through yet. And then the lady was like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll sort that out. Look it up. No, first they couldn't find us on the system. And then that happened. Um, and then we had an appointment on the phone, which didn't make sense. And then she said she'll send us through our appointment so he can come in and get tested again. And then the next day I had a really informal email saying, this is not something that you want to hear, but unfortunately you don't qualify for IVF. You're, so B was like, what? We've been having these appointments on both sides. He's been having urology appointments. I've been having, I had, no, I had one appointment. You've, we've paid for medication. Um, like now you're telling us that we don't qualify. It's because we're not registered under the same, in the same area and my BMI. So because my BMI at the time was, I think it was 31 or 30, it was 30, 31. But I, that just broke me, you know, and I think I got that the uh, day I went to parliament. Remember when I, when I saw you mm. and I got home and I got that, I got that email. Um, and it just, it just, it just broke me. Um, I contacted them and then they just sent me a list of their price list for private. And I was just like, how insensitive are you? And just, and, and the email alone within itself, I was just like, I just, I was just so upset. And I just felt like I just wanted to give up my fertility journey. Mm. Um, then I was already in contact with the endometriosis foundation. Um, and speaking to Carla and, you know, she saw my story and she was like, I want to help and, and support you somehow. Like, how, how can, how can I help you? And at that time I was just like, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know the channels. I, I had never been given any information. So I don't know where to go from what not to go. I don't know what to do. You know, um, my partner was in his zone because of what he's just been told, you know, and we're trying to support each other, but then we're, both upset you know it, it's been a whirlwind like year and a bit through it all um then we went to the fertility clip um the fertility show uh you know to get some information to find out what our what our options what our options are do we do it here do we do it abroad um what clinic do we go through um and then we spoke we had we gone private we spoke to um, a doctor, uh, Tyrone, then had another assessment, blood done. So we had to pay for all of this, all these tests and everything. And it's not cheap. Mm. It is, so it is really not cheap. And, and, it's, and it's difficult because, you know, you just feel like you're paying so much money, but you're not, you're given information, but it's just like, help us a, a little bit, give us a bit more information on stuff that, you know, we need to do it's, it's, it felt like I'm, I'm paying for, we are paying for all these things, but it's a lot of self research that mm. we're having to do, you know, and looking up this doctor and that doctor, you know, and then you just feel so overwhelmed and stressed by it. Um, you know, but then we was just like, we've had good open conversation about it, um, on how to support each other, how we feel about it. Um, but now going down 
the private route to see, you know, I know what I need to do on my side. Um, I'm having to think about, do I want egg donor? How would I feel about that? Um, surrogacy as well. Cause what I've been told is like, but I might not, um, what's the word? We, yeah, it might not listen, you know, um, and then also carrying as well with the adamiosis and still having the fibroids, um, which is not inside the, the womb or anything. So it's on the, the outside. So it's not, um, it wouldn't harm in any way. Um, you know, I'm, I'm worried about if I would miscarry, um, you know, and it's being told these things, it, it more makes you feel like, okay, I have to go down the surrogate surrogacy route and what does that look like for me and then it's like okay I need to get out of the way I need to get out of the way of thinking that I might not biologically have my own you know then I'm like oh well if it's not mine it's someone else's eggs how would I would I um connect with the baby if I'm not carrying the baby would the baby really connect with me that you know you start thinking all these things and you can spiral so much. And then, you know, it's having these conversations with people and the people are like, don't worry, you will have yours. I have faith. But and sometimes it's like, I don't, we don't want to, to, to hear that mm. because we actually don't know because of where we both are. You know, we might have to get donor sperm. So then it's like, how does he feel about that? You know? And then I know in this country, you can't have donor sperm and donor egg. So it's like, okay, then. So how do you feel about adoption? So it's all these conversations that we've been having over the last couple of months. And it's like, we have to make decisions. And because of my age now turning 40, it's like time has just gone, mm-hmm. you know, and you're, and they say you're a geriatric trying to get pregnant, you know, and you're more high risk of all these other, all these conditions and miscarriage. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a lot. I wonder about the the racial side of it because you went to your doctor early on and you got a you got a diagnosis of PCOS, even though one of the major symptoms of PCOS pain isn't a major symptom of PCOS. You know, and I I just wonder if you know, you feel like if you weren't, if you were white, you would have been diagnosed earlier. Do you like, what are your thoughts around the racial side of it? Um, yeah. So when I went into my appointment, um, and I, and I did state that, um, my mom has endometriosis, um, they, they were just like, no, I think you've got fibroids. And I was like, but, my symptoms are similar to my mom. Um, and I was asked like where my mom is from. And I said, my mom is white Irish. Um, and I'm just like, what does that got to do with it? And they said, no, but, um, with black British, Afro-Caribbean, um, it's more, it's more likely you have fibroids. Fibroids is, is a more common, um, condition within the community. So I was just like, okay, for one, I didn't even know what fibroids was when, when he stated that. And I obviously didn't, still didn't even know what endometriosis was. I was just going off by what my mum told me. And I was just like, well, no, I want, I want to be checked. And then in that same appointment, I was told that, you know, and this was at 30, early 30. I'm, I was told I was a geriatric then trying to get pregnant or wanting to get pregnant. And it, and it made, and the way he was talking was like, it was kind of like, is that, is that fair on a child? Oh my God. You know? Um, and then from that appointment, I was like, no, I need to see someone else. Like, I really need to see someone else. Um, and then obviously doing research, I started to learn, okay, fibroids is a lot more common. So what was out there at the time, fibroids is a lot more common. Endometriosis is a lot more common in white middle-class women. Um, and then obviously the groups that I was finding. So it kind of made you feel like, 
oh, maybe this is true. But I was like, can't be. But then I found out that, you know, it's the percentage might have changed now, but at the time it was like 7% um, of women. It can be genetics. So it could have been passed through from my mum, you know, which unfortunately I feel that that's what's happened to myself. But going into these appointments and they're looking at you and you're just like, you're this strong black woman and, you know, you you can withstand pain. Um, And it's like, well, no, if I could withstand pain, I I wouldn't be here. And I know my body, there's something going on, you know, and then you're looked at like, like you're a hypochondriac and, you know, you're just wanting attention and, you know, you're, you're paying, you're, you're telling them on a, from a scale of one to 10, it's 10. Oh no, like let's mark it down a little bit, you know? Um, and then I also found that with through conversations with other people that they were just being dismissed, just given paracetamol going along your way, going along the way. But then when their white friends or, or white family members would go into these appointments, they're getting treated a lot more differently. So it was just like, why are you treating me different because of the color of my skin? And you just got this perception that black women are a lot more stronger and we know how to withstand pain. And, you know, it's like we've been, it's like they were educated to, to believe less in black women than white women. Um, and I'm, I spoke to a, a trainee nurse and she said that she was told throughout her course you know, that black women are a lot stronger, you know, their pain for their pain threshold is a lot higher than, than, um, the white counterparts. And it's just like, so from, from when you guys are learning and in your, at uni or wherever it is that you're doing your courses, you are actually told this. I know there's black people in these courses. So, hey, or why, why is it, why was it not challenged and changed? So, now all of healthcare professionals are out there thinking, oh no, black women are a lot stronger than white women. So we don't, we don't, even though they say this, we just mark it down a little bit. Why are you doing that? You know, I found uh, even on my, even on my notes that the receptionist wrote, oh, she's called again about her pay. I wrote complaints, everything. I was like, are you being serious? What do you mean? Oh, she's called again. And why are you as a receptionist making a note saying, oh, she's called again about her pain? Yes, I'm in pain. I'm not lying about my pain. Why am I not being believed? You know, and then when my, when like my mom will go into her appointments, they, 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 they listen, they listen to her. But then as time has gone on, I've had multiple conversations with other people and I have found that you know, there are some peeps, there are some um, Caucasian people that are out there that their pain doesn't get listened to as well. So sometimes I just feel, okay, it's down to the education of that healthcare professional and what they're willing to learn and what they're willing to self-learn. So what they go out there to, to learn themselves from ex- putting them, from coming from uni or anything, going into the world, the place of work, and adapting what they've learned to their experience now. You know, it can say in the books, oh, this and this and this and this about black women, Caucasian women. But in the ideal world, when I when I'm having these six minute appointments coming in, it's it's not that. Mm. It's not that. And we should be listened to throughout anything that we're going through while we're pregnant, adamiosis, endo, fibroids, PCOS, like all pain should be listened to and it shouldn't just be this script that you that they follow because I feel like when you go into these I felt like I was going into these appointments and throughout the four doctors it was the same things being said to me the same things being suggested the same painkillers being suggested um they also look at your age so I've noticed that you know when you're at a younger age oh just go and get pregnant oh you've oh this and that and blah like, like you've got time on your hand. Then when you're in your in your late twenties and late thirties, um, you know, it's it's more of a, a thing where are we all geriatric trying to get pregnant or you're this and that. Um, you know, and also I think it's it's where you live. So like I know in my in my area, I feel like 
sometimes I feel like, like, like with a fertility, it's a postcode lottery, you know, where I live, you only get one round. Um, but in other areas, you might be offered two. Why, why is that the case? It should be this, if this person is going through this, then we can offer this amount to that person. And it just feels like if you're more in a deprived area, and then when you look at what your surroundings are and the, and the, and the culture that is around where you live, it's like you're trying to control the amount of, the amount of help you would give us as in to try and get pregnant hmm. as well. Um, yeah, there's, 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 there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a big, it's a big weighty subject, but I do feel like, you know, with everything that's happened over the last three years, people are more willing to have these conversations, which is a really good starting point. It's not the end, but it is a good I will say, even with that, sorry to interrupt, yeah. even with that, I've noticed when I, when I have spoken on color and when I've spoken on race, I've noticed quite a few people still step back, you know, because they don't want to get involved in the conversation or they feel they don't, they can't speak on it, you know, or, you know, I remember doing a live and from that live when we was talking about um, race and pain and being listened to. And I noticed like, even with my Instagram followers, that just went down and it was just like, why? And one lady um, messaged me and said, oh, I, I like what you was doing in your page and that. But from when you're then now speaking about race and stuff you're taking it to another place so I don't really I don't really support that and I said but would you you want to learn and as a as as a Caucasian woman would you not want to learn how other cultures go through things educate yourself learn from the people that are speaking that the people that you chose to follow when it was endo month or black history month and you and you want to show some support show that you're supporting like you're being a good good supporter and and following but as soon as the conversations are being had you want to step back from it that's not helping and supporting us as much as the community needs to work together and help and support each other we do need other people to come and help and support us as well to be heard and to be listened to properly Mm. you know and to be taken seriously yeah it's why it basically feels very like a myopic view of like maybe not feminism uh, but you know it's just about I want to get from you what caters to my own experience and I'm not willing to hear anything else you know you know we mm-hmm. but I want to kind of so to we could talk for so much longer there's so much you know I want more what I want to ask you but you know in the interest of time and also leaving listeners wanting to seek you out and find out more about what you do. Can you tell us the one thought that you would like to leave people with? If someone's listening and they're on the start of their journey, figuring out what's going on with them, what's the one thing that you would want to say to them? I think through my experience and um, advice I would have liked for myself, what is that, you know, advocating for yourself and, and speaking up is not a bad thing. You know, don't be scared to ask for that second opinion because I feel that, you know, you've always been told that you just, you must listen to the GPs and that's it done. No, listen to your body, learn your body and how your body reacts, reacts to things. You know, when I used to pee, personal train, you know, I would tell my clients, learn how your body reacts to food because you know not every what I can eat you might not be able to eat because it might it might um it might flare you you might have a flare up in some sort of way or constipation so learn how your body reacts to medication to products that you use and to the way you eat and to the way you exercise that's even down to walking even down to walking some people can walk for hours and be fine. And some people can walk for just half an hour. They get fatigued. Think about why you get fatigued. You know, is it down to your condition or is it down to you're not, not getting 
the right nutrition into your body to help energize energize yourself properly or you're not getting enough sleep in you know sleep is such a big thing um to help you with recovery to help you with your um when you're flared up and in that in that state um also you know try and have i say try because i sometimes think i've got an amazing support system and then some friends just drop off you know because sometimes they don't want to hear about what I'm going through or you know oh it's just another pain it's just another flare and blah blah, blah. sometimes I I felt that I was pushing to to make my friends understand what I'm going through you can't do that a person will choose whether they want to support you or not and you have to learn how to be how to accept that mm. and as much as I know losing friends and that has has hurt me and it's upset me and I'm get angry and blame my conditions. You know, it's like that person just can't give you that space and energy, you know? So know who you're speaking to about what you're going through. Find that one person. But even though when you're talking and releasing everything onto that person, you need to check in with them as well. Because as much as it is affecting you and it's you that's going through it, that other person is going through it with you as well. So make sure that they're on, they're in a space where they're willing, they're ready to um, accept what you're, what you're talking about. Cause it can be very heavy and it can make that person feel helpless. And that's not a nice space to be in. If you've ever felt like that, you know, you want to help someone, but you can't, that can play on their mental health as well. And also checking in with yourself and your mental health, doing things, when as and when you can to make um to make you happy you know when you're having a good day do something if that just means going out for a little walk or getting that ice cream or something something you know to to fill your day to make you feel happy within yourself because it can be very heavy it can be alone it can be um a lot on yourself physically and mentally you know even if it's just sitting down watching some cartoons as I do with my duvet <laughs> you know but I'm in my happy space and I can and I can feel a bit more fulfilled within my day because I've done something that has put me in that joyous moment and you know you've got to try and laugh through it you've got a um you know I dance dance and music is something for me um stretching you know, if there's loads of there's loads of things like like when we I've adapted some of your your yoga and your sessions and the stretching and the breathing, you know, and that's that's helped me. It also helps my anxiety because I I suffer with anxiety and I have panic attacks. I had one yesterday, you know. Um, but doing breathing exercises and stretching that help. There's there's so much I can say and leave you with. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll just leave it for that for now. Well, where can people find you? So I'm mainly on Instagram at the moment. So it's um, natplay underscore endo warrior. Um, or you can follow the Sunday Sip live event page as well on Instagram. Um, yeah, that's main two pages at the moment. And all the links will be in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for coming onto the show. And Adelie, your story is, your experience is incredible in what you've gone through, but also how, I know you're not on the other side, but, you know, you're still on the middle, but, you know, you have, you know, there's such as like, I, I don't mean, I want to say strong, but I don't mean it in the sense that, you know, it's been used, but you have a real strength and resilience about you. So I know that listeners will really benefit from hearing your story. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the space and the time as well. Like you're amazing in what you do. Like and the support that you've given me as well has been incredible. I've learned so much from you. And it has helped me. Um it's helped me to manage what I'm going through. Um, as I said, the breath, what every everything. 
your book, ev- like everything. Oh, so I thank okay. you for everything that you do. Love. Thank you so much. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.